So we're going to start in Genesis 6. Um, and last week we looked at, you know, Genesis 3. And why should every Christian know Genesis 3? Because Genesis 3 shows us the first sin, the first consequences for sin, and the first sign of redemption. We see that right there in chapter 3. And we, when we even think about, you know, being in this area of um, helping people seek forgiveness, whether it's counselor, whether it's parent, whether it's whatever other option, it is one, pointing out sin. Two, they probably know the consequences or reminding them of the consequences. But then that third aspect of also giving them a hope and redemption. And so we see that there in chapter 3 that God does that. But there were long-term consequences, and it took us two weeks to get through uh, Genesis 3. And so when we get to Genesis 6, you know, we see a little bit more of the same. Um, but we see God's radical plan to deal with sin. What do we skip so far? You know, and there's always things like, well, chapter four has the rebellion of Cain and Abel. It's got the first time where a man brings an offering before the Lord and how God dealt with that. Um, but we'll see this continue, this develop a little bit further on. Um, Cain, you know, the first, uh, the first child of Adam and Eve, you know, they poured all their, their hopes and dreams into that maybe this Cain would be the one that was prophesied to crush the, you know, in the seed of the woman, to crush the um, head or bruise the head of the serpent, you know, his seed. Um, but we find out quickly that with his brother, as they both bring an offering, that Cain's offering is not accepted. Abel's is accepted, and God sees that because Cain's offering was not accepted, that the way Cain responded, he gave him a warning and said, you know, anger is crouching at your door, and, uh, and so you need to repent. Instead of repenting, he went full-bore, you know, rebellion and killed his brother. Right then and there, we see the wickedness in man's heart, and it would not be through Cain. The, Adam and Eve would have another son, Seth, and maybe through Seth that this um, seed will come. And so through chapter 4 and chapter 5, we see you know, men kind of doing their own thing and rebelling against the Lord. There were a couple that seemed to walk right before the Lord. There was Enoch who was taken straight up into heaven. And so some of these interesting stories that we're kind of glossing over. I know it's only two chapters that we're skipping. Um, and so, but the spacing will come further and further as we get along. And so when we get to chapter six, we see this idea of this kind of increased corruption here on the earth. And so I'm going to read kind of big chunks, ask a couple questions, pause and see if there's anything to kind of work out. Um, and then we'll see how far we get today. Um, but the goal is we're going to cover three chapters. So you ready? Fire hydrants open. Close your mouth, open your mouth. I don't know, whatever works best for you. We're going to go through this. All right, verse 1, chapter 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. 
that's kind of like an epic story to like start out. It's like you know the intro. It, it could be the you know scrolling letters on a screen or something. And so there's a lot packed into there. There's a lot of debate that we could have through these verses. We could spend the next you know uh, 30, 40 minutes talking about these verses. I'm going to give you two. Um, and so let's ask this question. So what was the mandate that was given to man in Genesis 1.28? You guys remember, you can either look back, you know, flip back a couple chapters, but do you remember the mandate that God gave to man after he created them? What's that? Go out and multiply. Yeah, multiply. And there's kind of a twofold demand, uh, command. Be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over this earth. And so this idea, we see that have, that man began to multiply. They're doing exactly what God had said. But God desired, right, that, and it, it was kind of right on the heels, that in the image of God, um, well, in the image of them, God made them man and female, uh, male and female. And so you see this idea that in his image, that he made male and female, and then he says, be fruitful and multiply. This idea is that he's given them his image, mankind, and I want you to cover the earth with my image, okay? I want you to spread my image so that, you know, the reflection of God could be all over this earth, and that would please me, and that would glorify me. If my reflection could be radiated back through all of my creation, my special creation, mankind. And so we see that the first part that they're doing that is that it's being spread over the face of the earth, that they are being fruitful. We're going to start to see that in the way that they're being fruitful, they're not doing what God had desired. And so we'll get to that in just a second. So verses 2 through 4 raise some interesting debates. And again, you could spend some time kind of going through some of these debates. And, you know, the first one is, who are the sons of God? Um, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. It's interesting that you have these kind of twofold like comparisons you know, the sons of God and the daughters of men. Like, are they two distinct groups? And why the sons of God? And what is the, the term sons of God? It seems pretty, pretty high. And then the daughters of man seems a little bit lower. And so who could the sons of God be? I'll just give you kind of the, the, the thought. There is no, like, conclusive evidence, although you might lean one way or another and say, no, no, it's this. Um, which is good uh, for you to feel resolved in that area. But the sons of God could be just men. It's in different places, right? We see, um, we see Jesus is referred to as the son of God. He also is referred to the son of man. And sometimes we see the sons of God as referring to just mankind in general, meaning like image bearers of God. And so it could just be mankind in, in, in a poetic way to kind of describe these two different groups. So it could be men. Some would say that the sons of God are angels, meaning that they're kind of in the realm of the spiritual beings. And so the sons of God are angels. And perhaps these angels that have rebelled, these fallen angels, uh, could be something. And so we have sons of God, angels, mixing with daughters of men. Um, some could say that it is in the line of Seth, meaning when you start to see those that walked with God, you know, you've got Cain, Abel, and Seth. Um, that an Abel has been killed. And then, interestingly, in the generations that are described, Adam, had, Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters, but those two are the only ones that are described by name and that we see kind of a lineage. And so that the sons of God could be Seth's sons, meaning those who walked righteously. And then we have the daughters of men could be in the line of Cain and those that would walk unrighteously. 
And that actually gives a good kind of like parallel for things that we'll see later on in Scripture. If you kind of see like where I lean. But again, I, I don't need to argue with that because I only kind of came to this view recently. Uh, and studying this, I was like, that's probably like, you know, as I'm thinking about this, maybe where I land. Um, but you do see um, something that will happen later on in Israel's history. And again, remember, Moses is speaking to the people after their history has been described and after some of these things have already been rebuked. So as Moses is telling his people before they go to the promised land, these events have already happened. And there's a warning before they go into the promised land. You guys remember like what, what the biggest warning is about, to the people of Israel as far as when you go in the land and we're going to intermingle with the other people, what's like something I don't want you to do? Intermarry. I don't want you to intermarry. And so that was kind of a big thing is that that will be said and they did it and then, you know, they rebuked for it. It even happened while they were in the plains of Moab. And so this is actually past tense when Moses is, is telling them, you know, but later on in the story. And so it actually brings up a big dichotomy about those who are religious mixing with those who are unreligious being unequally yoked. Again, that's a lot to kind of pack in this one verse and the way it's described. And in the end, it really doesn't matter. I mean, you can, again, see it doesn't matter in the sense that it doesn't change what God is going to do um, in our understanding. So if you feel like somehow angels are mixing with men or you think that it's kind of this one strain or it's men and some other things, you know, then just feel strongly about why it is. And we can debate why it is, you know, at another time. So that's kind of one of the things. Who are the sons of men and then who are the daughter or sons of God and who are the daughters of men and why that language is used? Honestly, we don't know um, for certain. And then we have this other verse, you know, uh, these, these Nephilim, right? The Nephilim, verse 4, were on the earth in those days uh, when the, after when the sons of God came into the daughters of man. So you've got this kind of like group that was, was born. And so who are the Nephilim? And so depending on what you see is the Nephilim, it could just be, again, a race of men. It could be... Um, uh, angels uh, kind of intermixed. I had a teacher and I couldn't tell if he was joking or not, but he's like, maybe this is why we have aliens, you know? And you're like, do you believe in aliens? You know, and he'd always be like, he was a conspiracy theory teacher that would throw things out and you're like, do you really believe that? And he just would move on to the next thing. I think that was his thing. So anyway, but I was like, maybe. Anyway, um, and so there's all these different ways that you can kind of Think of, of the Nephilim. The Nephilim were a group described later in Scripture when, um, uh, when they go out and uh, the spies go out to the, the promised land. And again, this would be past tense. So Moses had, would already, um, the people would have already experienced this in their history when Moses is explaining Genesis 1 or reading Genesis, sorry, Genesis 6 to them. And so the Nephilim were this group who the Israelites felt like they were grasshoppers compared to the Nephilim. Whether that's exaggerated, like they were fearful of everybody in, in the land of Canaan. Um, but some think the Nephilim, because, you know, they said they were grasshoppers, that maybe they were giants. Again, I don't know. I and mean, if you read a movie, about, you know, see a movie that might have something to do with a story, there might be giants involved. And that's somebody's interpretation of this. I, I don't fall in that, that area. And again, I don't know why those terms were used. The people on the plains of Moab, as Moses is speaking to them, hopefully had a better understanding at that time why that term was used. Again, in the end, it really doesn't affect what's going to come next. And so we could spend a lot more time and I could go through more details and go to different verses about why people believe these certain things, but that's kind of a big overview. And then the last thing, verse 3, 
kind of has a dual understanding as well. And I'll just kind of point that out. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh and his days shall be 120 years old. How would you take that on, on you know, face value that, that his days shall be 120 years old? It's a cap for, it's a cap definitely. Okay, so it's a cap, it's a cap definitely, mean, meaning that you won't exceed 120 years old. And so there's two ways to see it is one is it could be 120 years old, meaning that's like the longevity of man. Up until this point, um, people were living, uh, you know, well into the hundreds. You know, Noah's going to be 500 years old. Um, several people, I think Adam was 130 when he had his kids. Um, and Methuselah, does anyone remember how old he was? 969. Look at that Bible history. Uh, you know, so I had to look that one up. I was like, I knew it was in 900s, but 969 years old. So people are living, uh, you know, well beyond what we experience. And again, we could take a detour and say, well, why is that the case? And there's different theories about why that's the case, but just take it as it was, right? Until God says it's not going to be that way any longer. And it could be because there's a cap that he's placing on it for man's life. And we do see that that kind of happens to be the case Afterwards, Moses would live to 120, but then Moses writes a psalm later on in Psalm 90 that he says man's life is about 70 and sometimes 80 years old. And so, you know, what was life expectancy um, after that? Uh, not as long as it was, and there are other reasons. But there's another interpretation that perhaps this 120 is my spirit won't be in you. You have 120 years to do what I'm telling you. And so we think, how long did Noah have? to make what he, the, the ark, that there's a 120-year kind of like warning period that he has to make the ark and to warn people about what's going to happen. And then after that, God is going to take life from all of the earth and his spirit, because remember when we talked about giving life, his spirit or breath went into them, that he will take the breath out of them, and so his spirit will be removed. And so there's kind of two ways to, to understand that, uh, that verse. It is one or the other. And um, I'm open to, to either interpretation. Um, it's probably not until, again, recently studying this that, you know, thinking in the way things are described, that it might be that 120 years. That's the way the MacArthur Study Bible uh, describes it. But 120 years is a cap of life. That would make sense to us as well, because sometimes we ask the question, why did they live so long? And now they don't. This would be a clear answer to that question. And so moving on, we kind of have an intro with poses a lot of different difficulties, um, a lot of things going on. But really, verse five is where we get to the heart of what's going on in the passage and what God is going to do. Verse five says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Well, how is man described in verse 5? <laughs> yeah, 
So, right, the Lord saw, right, that man was wicked, this great wickedness, and that the thoughts of his heart, right, that he always is bent to thinking, maybe not always in action, but actions usually follow thoughts, that he's always thinking about evil, right? Self-centered, how can I get what I want to get? And we see this played out in different ways. Um, we saw that Cain, you know, acted on, you know, his uh, desires, um, and there were consequences, but Cain wasn't, even though he was warned by God, we think maybe if we looked at the punishment for Cain, I sometimes wrestle like whether, you know, God was too, too light on Cain. I mean, he kills his brother and then, you know, Cain is banished. And then Cain's like, no, please don't do that for me. And then, you know, it's people are going to kill me. And he says, all right, nobody kill Cain. And you're like, that's not vengeance, but God is like protecting him and showing his grace. And so I'm not God in that respect. Um, but we see, though, that God sees that continually thoughts of his heart are always towards evil. Is this true only in Noah's day? Was this like something like so abhorrent that it only happened in Noah's day? Or do you think this has ever repeated itself in history? Continuously, yeah. And there might be periods, you know, ups and downs and peaks and valleys. And sometimes, you know, even in our country, we think there was a better time in our country. You know, we need to go back to that time. But there will be better times and worse times. I don't know. Maybe it will just be worse and worse and worse. Um, and so, you know, but how do we judge that? But man's heart is still bent towards evil. And there's nothing that can erase that. And we'll see that even after God tries to erase that and start over. I do think, though, that this was very particular. I mean, it's almost like there's an absence of any common grace. I mean, I mean, it's very. I, I personally, I think that this is probably the most evil. Kind of and and why do you think? Why what would be what would be a, re a reason? What is what is a restraint to man's sin? Uh, common grace, the Holy. I mean, basically, the influence of godly principles through, you know, influence of godly people. Okay. I would even go a step further is that even beyond that is that not only God's people and the common grace seen through that, but why do, why do people bent towards evil not do all the evil of their heart? It's desires. You could say, you could say the spirit of God, but what, what else might be a restraint? The consequences due to what? You know, why, why do people, um, why, why in traffic, you know, not everyone's just doing whatever they want? Although you might say, on my commute, people do whatever they want. Um, use your turn signal, buddy. What, what is that restraint? The law. the law, right? And so we'll actually see that God will start putting laws in place. Not laws in place, but laws in place. Um, <laughs> just waiting for that one to go. That's my last name. That's name. So... Um, so, uh, so putting laws in place in order to restrain people. You know, so some people don't commit crimes because they know the consequences, which is law and man's, you know, but God is actually, you know, of that and oversees that. You can read that in Romans. And so there's, there's that idea. And there's no law at this time, right? It's almost when we get to the book of Judges and we'll see that every man does whatever he wants in his own eyes. And there's great wickedness at that time. We even see that explicit great wickedness at that time. There's, there's no stories that are like, seriously, it was like that. Um, here it's just kind of glossed over. It was, it was bad. And so we just only have to kind of infer and think what's going on. Part of it also, some would say that this, um, the sons of God and the daughters of man, uh, you don't see any idea of marriage, that there is no, that it's just, um, there, there are multiplying, but it is just widespread 
um, procreation. And so because of that, there are no consequences that are involved in that. That could be a part of it too, you know, things that you can, you can kind of read between the lines as a possibility. But there is no law. There, there aren't things. It's only man's own law unto himself. And in a world of do whatever you want, whenever you want, um, that seems to outweigh those that are trying to do the right thing. And we only see a few of those men that are described as such. Well, how did, how did God respond? You know, so he sees that man is just evil, right? He, he knows this, but it's just like kind of gotten to this point that is bubbling over and he sees it and how does, how, what's God's reaction to it? Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting. I can't remember if I was playing this verse, you know, I was listening to, uh, you know, Genesis 6 and I was playing it in the car or something. And, you know, that's real early in the beginning. My son was like, what? Like, he kind of audibly was like, stopped. And I was like, what? I, you know, hit pause on it. Said, I said, what? He's like, God, you know, was sorry that he made man and it grieved him. And then a blot out man from the face of the earth. You know, that was his reaction as an 11-year-old boy. And I was like, you know, sometimes we just read over. You know, and then he did this and animals got on and then, you know. So, but if we pause and stop and think, like, when God sees sin, he's not like, oh, yeah, sin. I knew they were going to do it because I'm omniscient. I know everything. But it's like he sees it. And he's like, this is just, I, I, can't, I can't take it, right? <laughs> this is not something that I desire. This is not something that, you know, I approve of or condone. And so he gets to the point where he says, okay, enough's enough. And he says that there has to be a consequence of sin. I've kind of pushed off consequences for sin. Even death for some of you is coming like hundreds of years away. Um, I hope you would right the ship. You know, I cast you out of the garden. I, you know, I, I had some consequences that were to certain people who, who disobeyed. But for the most part, you don't care, right? You're just doing whatever you want to do. You're just, you know... Um, you're, you're multiplying the face of the earth, and my image is not being well represented. You have corrupted my image. You are spreading all over the earth, but it is not me and my image that is spreading over the earth. It is this corruption of man. And so because of that, he's going to destroy everything. And so because of that, we see like the immediate reaction to man's sin is the penalty of sin is death for them, but also the penalty of sin is what? Death for everything. All the animals on the earth that won't be spared are going to be destroyed. And so there is wide-ranging consequences for the entire earth because of their sin. This is only a few chapters in, you know, a few hundred years later that we see these things happen. And so we get an understanding that Sin is a big deal. If we can kind of let the weight of what's going on and the weight of what happens um, kind of hit us and take root in our heart. All but Noah. All but Noah is, is, is doing whatever is perverse to their minds. And so we get to now verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so how is Noah described as, as being different? Yeah, righteous and blameless. And so whether this is a qualification in, in regards to everyone else, but 
In this sense, like he is striving to do what the Lord desires. We see that he walks with God. And of all the people of the earth, Noah was righteous. Doesn't say his sons were righteous. We just see that Noah was. And so, um, you know, did God choose Noah because he was righteous? So some of those things that, you know, you, maybe you quibble about is like, well, there's one good guy out of the whole bunch. But really, we have an understanding that it's, it's God who, who um, uh, you know, is impacting Noah and making him righteous for the sake of what he wants to do on the earth. And so it is because God chose Noah to be righteous that Noah is righteous. We see that even in verse, uh, if you go back in five, to 528, his father Lamech, when Lamech had lived 182 years old, he fathered a son. Imagine having a child 182 years old. What does it even look like? I don't know. So, and he called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, going back to the curse of, of Adam, right? This one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. It's interesting that like he's speaking specifically towards like the curse that goes to man and you're coming out of the dust of the earth, but you are going to bring relief from the work. And that idea of relief sometimes is translated as comfort. And the idea that God regretted is actually the same word. It's, it's kind of hard to understand. You know, I couldn't really think of like contextually what's a good word that can kind of, you know, fit in those two different arenas. But it's the same root word that we see that the relief that we find comes through. So the comfort comes through uh, to speak to the regret that God had. And so that was even when he was born, he was kind of chosen and picked out and the Lord had Blessed that, uh, blessed him for that. He's in the line of Seth and Enoch, two other righteous men, and uh, you know Noah is coming out of that birthright. And so, verse uh, eleven, we read: Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So, if you haven't gotten the fact that man is evil. They're corrupting themselves in such a way that corrupt is corrupt. You know, there's like three corrupts in two, two verses. So, and God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. And this is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, the breadth 50 and its height 30. Make a roof of the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which the breath of life under heaven, everything that is on the earth, shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife, and uh, your sons' uh, Wives with you, and of every living thing of all flesh, you should bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, and of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in uh, to you to keep them alive. Also, take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. And Noah did this, he did all that God commanded him. And so we see again, this, the, the world was corrupt and 
filled with violence. And again, God's image is not covering the earth, but this corruption of the image. And so the result of that is God chose to end it all, to, to destroy the earth and everything in it, to hit the reset button, you know, to, to have a do-over. I'm going to do a do-over with all of creation. Sometimes you pause and think, like, why did God do this? I mean, why didn't he just, like, have something to fix it? Or, you know, why doesn't he do it later on in different places? We'll find the reason for that. But why, like, reset everything? You could say it's part of his plan. And I think it's probably maybe like the, the safe place to just rest and say it's because what God desired to do. When you do a reset and you destroy everything and you start back through one righteous guy, what, what, is, the, what is the intent then? Like what do you think would, would happen? Yeah, everything will be righteous from there on out. And what do you find? It's not, right? This is, there's a defect in man. The defect that was given even in the garden, you know, so again, remember that, that man isn't chosen to be sinful, but man is chosen to choose. Like God is given the ability to choose, but God will, uh, man, given that opportunity to choose, will choose towards his self-interest over time, over God's interests. Unless something changes, unless something changes, and there's got to be something that changes, and that's going to be the plight that really feeds into most of the history of Israel that we'll find is that, that it's, it's going to be something later on that is going to fix this problem, but it's going to develop over time. And so God's going to start with one man that he made perfect and give him a woman that he made perfect. And then we see, oh, everything was perfect. The whole environment was perfect. Uh, they were placed in a garden. You were perfect people and you fell, right? All right, so I'll let you go on, and you see it gets worse and worse and worse. We're going to start over. I'm going to choose one righteous guy and his family, and they mess it up too. And so there's got to be some other way that we can redeem this earth that, you, that, that my glory can be seen and reflected here on this earth, and we'll see how that develops over the course of going through these things. And God chose we're just going to destroy all of, of the earth, and, and then move on further. And I think there's other reasons that we'll see <clears throat> as well to help us when we look back and see certain things to understand why this was an important marker for all of mankind. And so, um, so one man, right, Noah, was saved while the whole earth is going to perish which speaks to kind of like um, kind of the negative of Jesus as one man is going to perish in order to save the whole world. And so we see even in the life of Noah and his choosing that we see the gospel in little glimpses. All right, we're going to fast forward through the next couple chapters. So verses 1 through 10, we can either read verses 1 through 10 or give a little summary. So God tells Noah, right? To bring seven of each kind of clean animal, two of unclean animals, give them and gives them a week before he's going to flood the earth. And then they did what they were told. So all the animals are aboard and we read verse uh, 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, 
On that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. And rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. And those uh, that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. Okay? So we kind of see this idea of everybody enters there. It's in, you know, the uh, 600th year of Noah's life is when this happens. Everybody, everything, all the animals, the eight people, uh, humans are on board. And then God from the outside shuts them in. And the flood continued 40 days on the earth. And the water increased and bore up the ark and it rose high above the earth. And the waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. And the waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died and moved on the earth, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left. And those who were with him in the ark and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. So they get in this box, this 300 foot, you know, if a cubit is said to be about a foot and a half, so you can multiply everything by a foot and a half, this 300 foot long, I think 75 wide and 50 higher, see those dimensions we can look back. Um, but basically this box, this idea of ark is, can be, can be uh, Translated as ark or a wooden chest or even sometimes a coffin. Uh, but this coffin wouldn't be full of dead. It would be the only things that's alive. And so just set there to float, not to steer or go in any particular direction, just to like bear up what's inside and to keep safe what is inside. But everything that's left is they get in and the, the, God shuts the door on them, right? They shut the door. If they had any control over that, maybe they would... Uh, you know, uh, have second thoughts. And if you just even picture, like, what would it have been like? You know, what would it have been like to think, you know, everybody on the earth is going to die? Um, everybody that he's known for 600 years and his family's known and his wife's families and everybody is going to perish on this earth. You see kind of like what happens when Noah gets out of the boat. You know, like one of the first things that he does like plants a vineyard. Well, not the first thing. The first thing he does is righteous. After that, he plants a vineyard and gets drunk. And some of the times you think like, oh, there's even the sin of, you know, Noah that's there. But you could probably even think of the scars that Noah is dealing with of like after what's happened, like trusting in the Lord, but even the difficulties that he's had to face for everything on the earth is dead. I mean, just imagine yourself like you and six loved, you know, seven loved ones and everyone else is gone. Not just that, but the world itself is Yeah. And, and 150 days, <clears throat> you know, just water around you, right? No mountains. And the idea is, again, all you can see is water just for a long time. I, mean, I haven't been on a boat for that long, but I imagine it's something that could probably make you, I don't know, very isolated, very alone, <laughs> uh, wondering, you know, a lot, of, a lot of time to yourself. And so, again... You know, we just kind of read through it and, and kind of get to the next part of the narrative. But if we stop and think, 
sin was that bad that it had to be dealt with. But even for those people that were saved, you know, the burden that is placed on them to carry on was a great honor, but also something that was likely difficult to, to take. And so after this, it's interesting, you know, some, some will say, you know, maybe it was a local flood. There's really nothing to gain from that, you know, unless like you're really trying to figure out, you know, well, I heard these stories about certain things in science, but it says 22 and a half feet was the highest mountains were covered underwater. Um, and so that's like nothing was sticking out above. And even now when we say, you know, people will compare like the flood to other flood stories and just say the flood is one, um, is just one of many flood options, you know, flood stories that, that can be understood. But what does that tell you? What does a flood story tell you? That if, if so many, there's, there's uh, you know, some, some would say there are 270 flood stories. And if you were to Google like Genesis 6 or the flood, it'll say like Genesis 6 is another flood myth describing, you know, how the, how, you know, what happened. But if there's so many of these flood stories, what's probably true? There was a flood, right? <laughs> and how, how it's interpreted and how one culture takes that, that story morphs it into what they're really trying to achieve. And if we understand that most of those cultures and religions are based off this idolatry, they'll fit it to serve their own needs. But there was a flood at some point Hard to deny, and you can see evidences of different places. There's really some good documentaries, um, uh, you know, that can kind of speak to to that idea. But everything was underwater, and that this story, you know, kind of gives birth to what happened later on. You know, records really weren't kept, and so people passed these stories of floods on and on, and so they morphed and and changed into to different different tales. But we have the record of what actually happened. Um, verses 1 through 19, the vi- waters eventually subsided and the ark reaches dry land. You can read the details about that and sending out the dove and all those things. And verse 20 says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and he took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall never cease. So what what did Noah first do when he lands? He does what? He what? He builds an altar and he gives a sacrifice. And the sacrifice was pleasing to the Lord. Something that, you know, you would see in Genesis 4 through Abel's sacrifice, and then Noah again. And so there's some way that man is interacting with God, but we see a distant God, not a close God as in the garden, um, that man is having to come to God through some other means, through a sacrifice. And so that'll actually then set up why the sacrificial system, which we'll get to a little bit later, but it speaks to something about um, death bringing life to man. And, and being able to cover sin and atone for sin. What promises God make to, to Noah? I'll never destroy the earth with a flood again. And so um, 
you know, I won't destroy the earth with the earth. Uh, and so later in scripture, you'll, you can read about how God will destroy the earth. Uh, but that can give us confidence and solace that we know that God won't destroy the earth through a flood. Um, and we will also know, looking at other scriptures, how God will destroy the earth. And so if we're worried about, a, you know, the sun, you know, finally burning out and everything grows cold and, you know, other, other ways that people think how we might die. It's not going to happen that way. And what does God, though, say about the nature of man? What does he describe? After he's reset everything, he knows, and, and he knew this in the beginning, but man is what? What's that? Man is evil, right? He's like, I know this. And so on my part, I won't destroy the world ever again. But we're going to start seeing things that God will do to start setting up um, how he's going to influence the earth, how he is going through common grace and through other means be able to um, give man an understanding of what is right and what is wrong and to start choosing because on their own, man won't choose largely and wholesale. And so verse uh, chapter 9, verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Same mandate. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and of all the fish in the sea. In your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. You shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. For your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it and from every man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply on it. We have this idea of this image of God, and because of that, be fruitful and multiply. And so he kind of gives the first law, right? The first law is, you murder somebody, we're going to go big. You murder somebody, I'll require blood from you. He didn't have that law in place over Cain, and Cain was allowed to live, but he's now giving it over to man to judge the actions of other man and to, to have rule over other man in this way. And finishing it out, then God said to Noah and his sons, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds of the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, and never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I've set my bow in the cloud, and that shall be a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. And so what do we take away real quickly? Is that first, God dealt with sin, right? It's not something to be taken lightly. And so up to this point, we've seen God's grace, but now we've seen God's wrath. And when God is pushed to a point of wrath, we see how God can destroy all of the earth and even be justified by it. We see a reminder of the scars of sin. If we ever look out, you know, if you get to a mountain, you look over the mountain, you see the valleys and all the, you know, cuts in the earth. You can see kind of this beauty, but also it's a reminder of the scars that were left from the flood and the destruction of the flood. And so we can see God's beauty even in this destruction. 
We see an explanation to what we see buried in the ground. And so this kind of gives, you know, a credence, even when science is kind of the new religion in our day and age, we have something that will give an understanding of why we see what we see, especially in the geological record. And there's a lot of places you can go to kind of understand that on a deeper level. And then lastly, we see the promise, right? The world will not end except how God determines it will end. And so that's a big thing, right? And we think about, you know, is global warming going to be our end? What's that? No, it's going to be global warming. <laughs> but it'll be fire, and fire in a different way. And you can read that in, uh, in 2 Peter uh, if you want to see that. also provided provision, coal and oil. What's that? Coal and oil. He provided provision for the human race. I mean, a lot of the coal and oil for the vegetation after the flood. He knew in thousands of years you will need oil to drive your cars. But it's true. Yeah, yeah, true. And you need a coal to make steel, and so from a structural standpoint, yeah, all of us engineers are like, amen, brother. Um, and so the Lord had that, you know, that even through uh, that destruction, we can have uh, things that will further, further us in our time today. A lot of things that were, were, could have been said, uh, but again, I want us to kind of get the big picture, and then we'll see how these little stepping stones are kind of leading to something uh, even bigger but um, the Lord, again, doesn't take sin lightly and will deal with it if he desires, but also gives a promise that he'll deal with it in particular ways at particular times. And so knowing that, we'll see how that is detailed later on and uh, we'll even point to a coming Savior in the future. All right, any final questions? We've lost half our class, but... Uh... <laughs>